I don't know if, if you're like me, but I'm a big fan of sayings and cliches. I like to come up with my own sometimes, like, like uh, sometimes in ministry, you know, if you have a great Sunday attendance, uh, it's, everybody's excited, the church is great, and if you have a bad Sunday attendance, uh, you know, everybody gets down and depressed. So I stole this saying from somebody, it's like every, every Monday, it's like either a carnival or a crisis, right? I like those things, either a carnival or a crisis. So, um, you know, uh, a lot is a lot of littles. We have a lot of sayings. Maybe you've heard this one. Uh, this is a real fishtail. You ever hear that one? It's a real fishtail. Or uh, this is a whale of a story. You ever hear that one? Uh, obviously, in light of our topic tonight, you know, fishermen are sometimes known to tell some outrageous and exaggerated stories. And so you've heard that saying before. And it usually has the idea that, that whatever they say, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger. So if they say they caught a fish... Two and a half feet long, it was probably a guppy. You know, things like this. Exaggerated statements that they make about story. And tonight, we're going to look at one of the most famous stories in the entirety of the Bible. Almost everybody's heard of it. And you could even be an agnostic or an atheist, and you've heard of Jonah and the whale. But it may not be a whale. Jonah and the great fish. So tonight, we're going to examine this text, and that issue is this. Is the book of Jonah true in general? And then in specific, was Jonah really swallowed by a great fish, or is this simply a, and I'll get into my fake man be pam just a, a, a moral lesson that we can all learn to teach us that good, you know, and I can't even do it anymore. But is, or is it just a great story to teach us a moral lesson, but it's an absolute lie? Of course, uh, scholars would say, well, it's not a lie, so they call it a myth. And by that, they mean some tale which has true meaning, even if the story isn't true. Is it a true story? Is it a myth? Uh, if it is really something that happened, and it really is true, could it happen? Maybe you could ask, you know, has it ever happened? Um, was a miracle involved? Could it have been all natural? Tonight we're going to answer that question as we look at the question of when life swallows you up. So we're going to look at the question and then draw some analogies of how sometimes life will swallow you up and it'll just gobble you up. I may know that life can gobble you up. Gobble, 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 gobble. It's like Pac-Man. You ever get gobbled up by life and you go, what do I do when I'm gobbled up? That's what I want to talk about. So tonight, let's answer that question and take out your Lakeshore notes, open to Jonah chapter 2. I believe we have the book chart on the side screens, hoping. Yes, what a team. It's on the back of your notes. Um, one of my passions is to, that at the end of my life, I will have drawn a book chart, synthesized the book chart for all 66 books of the Bible. I believe I have about uh, 20 of the books charted. And so this helps us understand the book. Jonah, obeying God when you'd rather not. That's the big theme. Remember, Jonah has two cycles, and we're going to finish chapter 2 and complete the first cycle. Jonah's, Jonah fights God's mission. And then in chapter 3 and 4, Jonah fulfills God's mission. And we're going to complete that cycle in the next two times. Uh, God's activity, go preach to Nineveh. Uh, get swallowed up by a big fish, go preach to Nineveh again. And then ask Jonah the tough question, do you have a right to be angry? And so we see Jonah runs away, he's thrown into the sea, which is where he left off last time, and today we're going to see how he prays inside the great fish and how he's vomited onto land, 
We've moved from God's presence, where the story of Jonah began, to his account on a boat from the port of Joppa across the Mediterranean, which we're going to see in a minute, in chapter 1. And then when everybody figured out the reason why the storm came was because of Jonah's sin against God, he was what? Thrown to the sea. The sailor says, please don't hold us to account. Please don't put this on our account. Put it on Jonah's tab, you know, and, 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 and Jonah... Uh, um, it was put on Jonah's tab, and this was fleeing from God in chapter 1. Tonight we're going to see how he was in the belly of a great fish and how he's praying to God. So again, look at this chart and get a feel for it. You can just see the two cycles, and, and each chapter is a, a pericope or a count or a story. And so that's what that's about. Let's go to the next slide. What a team. What a team. We tried to get this on the back of your notes, and um, we'll try to get this on the back of your notes next time so you have a hard copy of it. If you go to our website, you can actually get the book chart electronically and you can get this chart. So remember, Jonah started, he was from Gath Heifer. We don't learn that from Jonah, but from one of the other um, Old Testament books. And we don't know where he heard the call of God. It may have been near Jerusalem. He went to the port of Joppa to get on a boat. God asked him to go where? Way up here to Nineveh, the capital of the world empire at that day, Assyria. And he went where? Exactly the opposite, right? Whoop. All the way to southern Spain. Who wouldn't want to go to southern Spain? What a place, huh? And on the way there, we do not know where, but somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, it says in the heart of the sea, so maybe literally it was in the center of it. We don't know. Or it could just be an expression that it was really, really deep down there. He was thrown into the sea. And so tonight... We're going to look at Jonah and the great fish. Before we dive in, let's look at verse 17 of chapter 1, and we're going to answer the question, is it a fishy story? Is this a fish tale? Is this a nice moral story with some general truth, but, but not real? Let's look at verse 17 of chapter 1. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Keep that in mind, three days and three nights. We're going to come back to that at the very, very end. I want to give you evidence for why I believe that the account as presented in Jonah chapter 2 is true. The technical word for this is that it is historically accurate, or um, sometimes if you want to sound smart, it's the historicity. You know, what is the historicity of this text? I believe it is historically accurate as demonstrated. I believe it's a literal account Literally, everything that happened is not a figure of speech, it's not an expression to represent a moral good, but a true story. And let me give you four reasons why there in your notes. The first point there, the first reason why I believe it is because Jewish tradition considered it historical. So in other words, the Jewish people who were right there, right around that time, and theretofore to follow considered it historical. The Jews who were the closest to the story considered it to be a literal, true, accurate, historical account. Jewish interpreters of the Scripture did as well. Of course, think about this. You say, well, they, they have some vested interest. They're Jewish. They just want to... They had no vested interest. Think about it. Uh, of course, if it were not historical, or any whiff of evidence that it weren't true, they would have every reason and every motivation to point this out. 
because their arch rival, the evil Assyrians headquartered in Assyria, were actually honored in the story. They'd have every reason to say, well, we don't want to honor them. This isn't true. And, 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 and they would have every reason to say it's not true. But they believed it to be true. There's no reason that they would accept it unless it was true. Do you ever, you know, the old story where if I tell you something and then you tell somebody something and then you get to seven people, the seventh person, it, it's deteriorated. The message has changed. And so... Um, the closer you get to the source of a story, the more likely you are to get the truth. So the Jews who were right there said it's a true story. And if they had any reason to doubt it, they would say, yeah, it's not true. The Assyrians, they're no good and, and, and all that. So Jewish tradition considered historical. Second, the other content in the book of Jonah necessitates its truthfulness. So if I can throw out some five-cent words here. The first bit of evidence is what we call external evidence. It's evidence that it's true outside of the text. This second point is internal evidence. What evidence inside the account, inside the book of Jonah, internal evidence, internal to the book, tells us that it's true? Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, you're at Jonah 2.1. Go to Jonah 1.1. Look at what it says. The very first phrase. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, whose name means... Dove, remember that? Son of Amittai, whose name means truth. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That formula, that expression, is similar to the opening of other Old Testament minor prophets. If you want to write them down, here they are. Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. We have no reason to believe Hosea isn't true. Joel. The word of the Lord came to Joel. No reason to believe Joel isn't true. People say, how could locusts do all this damage? There's so many evidences in Joel, which is an account of how locusts, literal locusts, I believe, ate crops, and they would do this from time to time. Micah uses the same formula, another Old Testament minor prophet. Zephaniah uses it. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament, they're called the post-exilic prophets. The last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are called post-exilic because they were written after the Jews were exiled during the Babylonian captivity and had returned. So they're called post-after-the-exile-exilic. So all of those books, again, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, seven Old Testament books, use the same formula. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. We have no reason to believe they're false. So why would this formula, which seems to stamp authenticity that it really is the word of the Lord, why would it not be the word of the Lord one of the seven times? It's a formula that suggests veracity and truthfulness. Of course, you understand there are times in the Bible where figurative language is used, right? The wings of the Lord will overshadow you. It's got a bird, you know, big bird. No, it's an expression. You know you're using language because we know from the New Testament, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So you're not going to believe he's a bird. Of course there's poetic, figurative language. And in Jonah chapter 2, as we're going to see, he uses the approach of the psalmist. But there's no real reason to believe this is untrue for other reasons, which we'll point out. Additionally, other parts of Jonah, namely the historical evidence 
of the conversion of the Ninevites, which has been confirmed in many, many ways through archaeology, through history, through the recovering of scroll, uh, not scrolls, but of, um, but I forget the, 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 the term for it, but where there was a literal, um, it was like a dowel, it was like a thick clay, um, like a rolling pin, but thick, and sometimes they'd have stories and accounts on them. There are artifacts that, that prove or demonstrate that there was claims that there was a literal conversion that took place in Nineveh, in Assyria. And so that's true. So why would the fish story not be true? So that's internal evidence. The other content in Jonah. The third reason why I believe this account is a truthful historical account is, and this is important, Jesus spoke of it as historically factual. Jesus did. I know I had you turn to Jonah chapter 2. Keep a finger there. And I want you to go to the New Testament. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 12. Now you can see this in Matthew 12, 38 to 41. I'm going to spend a little time there. You can see this in Matthew 16, 4, Luke 11, 29 to 32. All the references are there for your further study. But let's together, let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 41. Let's read it and then we'll comb through it together and we'll pick out some phrases. When Jesus was dealing with some of the religious leaders, verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And lots of people, they say, God, give me a sign. I think God will give you a sign. But notice the qualifier. Give us a miraculous sign. You don't tell God what sign to give you. Okay, when I became a Christian, I did. I said, God, give me a sign that you're real. Give me a sign that I should believe in you. And I've shared the story how I did great on an exam that I asked God to give me a sign for. This exam before I failed, the exams after I failed. I got a D in the course. The only reason I passed is because God gave me a sign on one exam. Now you could say that was a miraculous sign. But nonetheless, you can't tell God what kind of sign to give you. These people said, give us a miraculous sign. Of course, Jesus knew their heart. Look at what he said, verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. If I could stop right there, it's amazing how many Christians are going from miracle healing event to miracle healing event to miracle healing event. You ever see these? Miracles, 7 p.m. tonight. Could God do something at 5.30? Could he do it at 2 in the morning? I, I, I get a little confused how we like to program God. So uh, just be very, very careful about the signs and wonders and the miracle movement. Because the greatest miracle is that you're a Christian. That's the greatest miracle that could ever happen. That God could penetrate sin-laden hearts, hardened hearts, as we talked about last Sunday, Ezekiel 36, take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That's the greatest miracle. That anybody would believe in Christ. It's a miracle. But he goes on to say, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Our boy Jonah, who we're looking at. And look at this expression, for as, circle that phrase, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Circle the second, so the beginning of verse 40, for as, circle that, and then so, the Son of Man, just circle so, that's a connected. So for as Jonah so is Jesus. Get that? 
Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up, stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jesus said in chapter 4, or chapter 3, when the Assyrians in Nineveh repented, it really happened. Jesus said, it really happened. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Keep that in mind. One greater than Jonah is here. Implied in that, Jesus is like Jonah. Or maybe, let me get that the right order. Jonah is like Jesus. Keep that in mind, because we're going to show that at the very, very end tonight. It's going to be really cool. And then he goes on. Uh, actually, let me see if I need to go further. 41. And someone greater than Jonah is here. Now let's comb through that. Number one, he says, just as. If Jesus' death and resurrection are real, and as a Christian, we have to believe that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you're still in your sins, and your faith is absolutely futile and empty and useless. Anybody who says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he rose from the dead, then you don't believe in Jesus Christ. You believe in some caricature of some other figure who was not Jesus the Christ. You have to believe that he died, buried, and rose in the same body, now resurrected and glorified. You have to believe that. You have to believe that. And of course, to believe that you're a Christian, and if you believe that, just as real as Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is, so Jonah must be real. Just as Jonah, so Jesus. It has to be. Jesus said so. Additionally, uh, he says that toward the end of the text, Nineveh will stand up. These are real converted people. So why would Jesus say, well, the swallowing up part is fake, but what really happened is real? It, It just doesn't jive. And then third, Jesus' truthfulness is totally at stake. Totally at stake well, I don't believe it's a real story, then you've just told me that Jesus tells lies. Oh, he's not telling lies. He's speaking of this myth story as a true myth story. No, he's not. So as, just as so, that formula says it's got to be real. Because if Jonah's not real, then Jesus' resurrection's not real. And if Jesus' resurrection's not real, we're all doomed, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Very important. And then fourth, and this is really cool, being swallowed by a fish and surviving is demonstrably possible. It's demonstrably possible. Now let me say this. I do not know what happened. Could it be a miracle that God used to keep Jonah alive in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? And remember what we said. Three days and three nights does not mean 72 hours necessarily. right? In the Jewish mind... Any part of a day was considered a day and night. It's called an idiom. We say this ourselves. I worked all day. That does not mean you worked from 12.01 a.m. to 11.59 p.m. What that means is, you know, pretty much every waking hour I was busy working. It's an idiom and it's an expression. Three days and three nights is the same thing. Uh, Because we do know Jesus was crucified Friday at 3 p.m. We do know he rose very from the dead very, very early Sunday. No way you can get 72 hours out of that. But you can get part of a Friday, part of a Saturday, well, all of Saturday and part of a Sunday. That's three days and three nights. 
But you, it, it could be a miracle. It definitely could be a miracle that Jonah was in this great fish, potentially up to 72 hours, right? We believe that could happen. But it's also possible that it was not a miracle. The Encyclopedia Britannica has this. Uh, it says, Since the species of the fish is not known, we are free to consider any animal that could be acclimated to that body of water, the water of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if you use this naturalist interpretation, which is definitely a possible interpretation. It is possible that, quote-unquote, no miracle was involved. Obviously, there was a miracle and that God sent the fish to, to get Jonah. We know that was a miracle because God had to lead that fish to be at the right place. We know that was a miracle. But his surviving may or may not have been a miracle. And you're free to believe either way, I think. Um, the sperm whale is one such fish. Dr. John Hanna, who's one of my history professors in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, said this, Sperm whales are known to have swallowed unusually large, ob large objects, including even a 15-foot shark. Now, most human beings are somewhere, you know, between five and a half and six and a half feet. Sperm whales have, if it was a sperm whale, we don't know, have swallowed 15-foot sharks. Others have written that whale sharks, the Rhinodon typicus, have swallowed men who were later found alive in the shark's stomach. Uh, in, the, in a letter sent from the Encyclopedia Britannica to an inquirer, there's a specific event cited. Listen to this. Uh, in this letter from the Encyclopedia Britannica a number of years ago. The great fish in question would be the sperm whale. So talking about a literal account. Or the um, cachalot, the species which inhabits the southern waters of where Jonah was voyaging. It attains a very large size and may measure from 50 to 80 feet. So the, the great fish itself can be anywhere from 50 to 80 feet in size. So I want you to get a picture of that. 50 to 80 feet in size. That's big. Such a chamber inside the great fish would easily accommodate, listen to this, 20 Jonahs standing up, upright. Could a man live in a whale? The answer seems to be that he certainly could, though in circumstances of very great discomfort, I would imagine. <laughs> I like that. There would be air to breathe of, of a sort. This is necessary to enable the fish to float. Now, did this really happen? Listen to this. Did this really happen? Again, in the same letter. James Bartley was a, a literal historical person. He disappeared. He could not be found. A sperm whale was killed and was brought onto a ship and was lying by the ship's side and the crew were busy opening it up and removing the blubber. They worked all day and part of the night cleaning this thing out. The next morning, as they were cleaning out this gigantic sperm whale, they actually found Bartley, the missing sailor, doubled up and unconscious inside the great fish. Bartley affirmed that he would have lived inside uh, his house of flesh until he starved, for he lost his senses uh, through fright and not from lack of air. His skin, uh, where it was exposed to the gastric juices, was bleached a deadly whiteness, though otherwise his health did not seem affected by the terrible experience. It literally has happened. By the way, I want you to think about this natural interpretation. He lived, because of the gastric juices, he turned 
white, like Edgar Winter or something, like an albino. Follow the naturalist interpretation. Could you imagine Jonah, white as a sheet, walking through Nineveh, saying, repent. Yeah, there'd be that nervous laughter like, "Ah, ah, okay. So a naturalist interpretation could have been used by God to spur on. Oh my goodness, the terror that struck people. So you can see it definitely had to be a miracle that God directed the Jonah directed the, the great fish, sperm whale, whatever it was, to swallow up Jonah. We definitely see it could have happened, and he could have used that experience to literally humble Jonah and to turn him white naturally so that his preaching would be accompanied by such a horrific presentation that the fear of God fell over the Ninevites. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Very, very cool how God can do a miracle but use natural things. So for these reasons, I definitely believe with all of my heart, it's very reasonable to believe. Let me say one thing about Christianity. Christianity is a faith. It is not a blind faith. It is an informed faith. I did not see Jesus rise from the dead, but there's so much evidence to suggest the veracity, the truthfulness, the historicity of it, that I think it takes more faith to believe he didn't rise than what he did, even though nobody saw it. Nobody saw creation, but there's so much evidence to believe that there's an intelligent design behind it all. So with that all being said, now we're going to look at Jonah and the great prayer. And the question I want to ask is, did Jonah have a changed heart? And I'll give you the answer up front. Yes and no. We're going to see tonight the yes side, and then two times from now in chapter 4, we're going to see the no side. Isn't that how a lot of us change anyway? Isn't that how a lot of us change with yes and no? Yes, I submit my life to Christ, but not this part. Yeah, I'll read the Bible. No, I will not give the full tithe. Yes, I will come to church, but no, I will not do anything else. So, so we all do this at some level. We have selective commitment to Christ. I yield this part of my life to Christ, but not that, not that. And so let's not be harsh in judging Jonah. Let's, again, do what the Bible's intended purpose is to see ourselves in the characters. So Jonah uh, had a heart change. He's in the belly of the great fish, and he offers a prayer. It was written in the form of a psalm of thanksgiving and deliverance. A lot of the psalms have character traits. There are psalms of penitence, psalms of thanksgiving. This is a psalm of confession and thanksgiving. There are different genres or styles or categories of the Psalms. They're not all the same. Of the 150 Psalms, they have different styles and really important to know the the genre, the style of it. Um, So Jonah was very familiar with the Psalms. So what do you do when life swallows you up? Let's go back to Jonah. What do you do when life swallows you up? What do you do when you're overwhelmed with an issue you can't solve? What do you do when you're overrun by a long-standing dilemma? What do you do when you're overblown by a surprising difficulty? What do you do when you're overturned by a major catastrophe? Let me give you four principles, and we're going to surface them right from the text. Here's the first. When life tries to swallow you up, as, as the sperm whale or the great fish swallowed up Jonah, here's the first point. Don't turn from God in anger. Instead, Turn to him in prayer. 
Look at verse 1 to 2. From inside the fish, okay, this whole chapter except for the end, he's inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And I find it fascinating that he brings the personal pronoun his God. Because whenever you go through a trial, God becomes more personal, doesn't he? Instead of being the God out there, when you're in pain and you need him, he becomes the, your God. That's why God sends us through trials, so that he becomes our God, not that God over there. See, he gets personal. Verse 2, he said, in, and this is parallelism. Watch how these two lines parallel. In my distress, I called to the Lord. That's a prayer. And he answered me. How did God answer him? The fish swallowed him up and kept him from drowning. The parallelism. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. He's praying. And you listened to my cry. God kept him from drowning. When you get swallowed up by life, don't turn from God in anger. Instead, turn to him in prayer. Until you are trained by it, the most natural thing you do from when you go through a problem is to run from it. If your house is on fire, you don't normally run into it unless there's something worth saving, like a child or something. And our natural inclination is to run from stuff. You go through a trial, and it is not natural to instantly pray. But Jonah did, and we should. When you go through a trial, pray. Tuesday night, we had to take my car, my wife's car, last Tuesday night to Z-Bart. We, get, we have this annual rust-proofing thing, so we're trying to get every ounce of mileage out of our cars so that, you know, we, we feel like for us, the less money we spend on stuff, the more money we have for things that are important to us, like giving to God and other things. So cars are not a big value to us. And uh, we had lost a set of keys, and uh, so we could not pick up the car the next day, so I said, just lock the key in the car because Sue had the remote and she could unlock it. And uh, I told Sue, I go, well, we can pick it up tonight. She goes, what'd they do with the key? Well, they locked it in the car. You could just get your remote and unlock it. She goes, my remote doesn't work anymore. <laughs> we lost the other set of keys. As sure as I'm standing here, it had been a year. And Sue looks at me like, what a jerk you are. This is a natural and common occurrence. I present teed up opportunities for her to view me as such. I am not kidding you. We had lost the keys for a year. We called every place we'd ever taken any of our cars. They didn't have it. So the whole time I'm praying, I said, God, pray, pray for my marriage. I pray that you keep us married as we're driving back because we could not get the car. And I said, God, help me find the keys. I want you to know something. They had been lost for a year. So I got home with steadfast determination, and it had been like 8 o'clock. We had a long day. We both worked really late at, at, at the office, and we got home at about 8. I'm starving. I said, I'm not eating. I went through every single coat in the closet. Wouldn't you know, I found it in the pocket of David's coat that he hadn't worn in a year, and we got the car that night. We could not find it for a year. I offered a simple prayer. said, God, please help us find the keys. Coincidence? You can make the call. I know it wasn't. And when you have a catastrophe, pray. What do we tend to do? Fight! Defend yourself. Figure it out. Then when that doesn't work, pray. 
God says the exact opposite. Pray, then you don't have to fight. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to figure it out. Pray. This is why we want you to come to Synergy. If you prayed about your problems, you'd have less problems to pray about. And then your prayer can be more praise. Second Saturday, 9 to 1030, shameless plug, be there, aloha. Best hour and a half you'll ever invest. That'll take place next Saturday because that'll be the second Saturday, 9 to 1030. You don't have to even pray out loud. Second thing, when life tries to swallow you up, don't blame the circumstances on chance. Instead, realize God is at work. Look at verse 3. You, circle that word, you hurled me into the deep. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> you said the sailors did it. Yeah, the sailors were the instruments. But who necessitated that he be thrown in? God. As a form of payment for sin. Keep that in mind. A form of payment for sin. Jonah's sin. He had to be thrown in. So the sailors were the instrument, but who really threw him in? God. That's why Jonah says, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And that's where he could have potentially been right in the dead center of the Mediterranean when he says the very heart. Or it could just mean that he went, you know, way, way down really deep. And the currents swirled about me. You know, underwater, there are currents. That's how the water, the waves come into the shore up top. And then how do they return? Because there are currents underneath. So the deeper you go in the ocean, there are different kinds of currents. That's why you can go swimming and you get caught in a current, you get pulled down and die. You could be a very good swimmer, you can die because of currents. The currents swirled about me. Can you imagine how scary that is? Not only are you in water, but you're like, you're, you're, your equilibrium is thrown. And then look at this. All the waves and the breakers swept over me. But here's the thing. He didn't say the storm caused it because God caused the storm. He didn't say the sailors caused, caused it. He did it. So don't blame the circumstances on chance. Instead, realize God is at work. This is the second important truth. In 2010, had a number of crazy things happen in my life. Some of them happened in the church. Not fun. And as you all know, uh, came back from just like God. I came back from like this incredible round. I played like Nicholas or Tiger Woods. And then I come home and, uh, you know, my daughter and wife are at the table. And my wife looks at me and I knew something was wrong. And she says, Alicia wants to tell you something. And Alicia doesn't say anything. She starts crying. I knew exactly what it was. I go, you're pregnant, aren't you? And uh, I was ticked. You know, I had to come here on, in September, and I had to tell you the story. The elder's like, don't, you don't have to tell people a story. I'll, and I'll tell you why I told you the story. Because if I don't tell you the story, some other people will tell you the story. And some of them will have my best interest in heart, and uh, a small minority may or may not. I had to get out in front of it. Uh, it was one of the tougher things I've had to do. Of course, now my daughter's on the right track with God. My grandson is... Uh, you know, turned 18 months today. Cool. I love him. My wife told me, she says, I think Brandon saved Alicia's life. I am not justifying her sin. I am not suggesting you have a baby out of wedlock too. I'm not. I'm just saying that God can use it. 
And instead of seeing all of these problems, and believe me, I failed. You can ask people. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Instead of seeing, how can this person do that? How can my daughter let her family down? How can this? How can that? How can that? How can that? You know what I see? The truth that buoyed me more than anything else, it's a life-changing truth, is that I believe God is sovereign. Nothing happens in your life by chance. Nothing. Nothing. It's all predetermined by God. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to be an ultra-Calvinist. I don't care what you call yourself. You better believe that God is sovereign. Otherwise, you think life is happenstance. I gave my life to Christ. I am not interested in taking it back all the time. I do take it back some, right? Because you do too. But, but, but in truth, I only take parts of it back. But then I try to put it back on the altar and give it back to God. You've got to believe he's sovereign. You know, if only I didn't do this. If only they didn't do that. If only the... Forget all that. Everything is custom designed by God to help you reach the goal of life, which is conformance to the image of Jesus Christ. It's important. So don't blame the circumstances on chance. Realize God's at work. Number three. Third thing, when life tries to swallow you up, don't give up hope on God. Instead, expect the best from him. Look at verse four to seven. He says, I said, I have been banished from your sight. He said, you know what? I, I, I know it. you threw me overboard. I'm never going to see you again. But he wouldn't give up. He says, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Stop right there. What, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the literal temple in Jerusalem? Potentially. Or is he talking about God's eternal temple in heaven? I'm not sure it really matters because God's temple in heaven is in essence, where he dwells, but God's omnipresent, and he dwelled in a certain sense in the temple as well. I'm not sure it really matters, so whichever one, whether it's the literal temple in Jerusalem or the heavenly temple, uh, either one, I think, is a fair interpretation, so we're not sure. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. Can you imagine how scary that is? You're going all over the place and seaweed's all over your face. The roots of the mountains, uh, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, <laughs> down to the bottom. The earth beneath barred me in forever. I was like trapped in an underwater prison. But, thank God for the contrastive, you brought my life up from the pit, O oh Lord my God. You did. You brought it up. All of this despair, I could have given up on you, but I trusted you. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. That's why God allowed his life to ebb away, to get him to remember God again. And it's why he does it for us. And my prayer rose to you, to your heavenly temple, to your holy temple. Where it says it rose to your holy temple, that suggests that the temple there is probably the heavenly temple. So, Maybe the second temple is the heavenly temple. Maybe the first one is as well. But the, the rising of the prayer suggests that it was up in heaven. So don't give up hope on God. Expect the best from him. Expect the best. Don't tell God what is the best. Just expect the best, whatever he determines is your best. How many know that your best for your life is not always God's best for your life? Because you don't know everything. So let God's best be your best. I, I try to expect the best from God. Sometimes my best is do this. Sometimes he answers this. Sometimes he doesn't do this, but he does that. I trust God's best. 
There's some truth to believing God for great things, but when you start naming it and claiming it and say, God, you do this, I speak it into existence, that's crazy. Now you're playing God. But, but there's a root of truth to some of this to expect the best from God. It certainly beats expecting the worst from God. So expect the best from God, but let him decide what's best for you. Because again, you gave your life to him, right? So don't take it back. And then finally, don't change your priorities when you go through life and it swallows you up. Don't change your priorities. Instead, remember who has already saved you. Remember who has already saved you. Look at the summary to this beautiful psalm, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. They forfeit it. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, which is what this prayer is, will sacrifice to you. What's he, th- what's he got in mind here? I'm going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to do it. It's going to be a sacrifice, but I'm going to do it. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. It comes from nobody else. Acts 4, right? Salvation is found and no other, nowhere else, because there is no other name under heaven through which we must be saved. Is that Acts 4.12? Anybody know? Acts 4.12? I believe that's what it is. It's in Acts 4. Verse 10, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited it up Jonah onto the dry land. He remembered that God saved him by swallowing the great fish, and then God saved him further by vomiting him up on the dry land. And here's what I want to say. If God saved you from your sin, and that is the greatest thing God can save anybody from, right? Wouldn't you agree? The greatest miracle is that anybody's a Christian. Then what would stop God from saving you from anything else? What I try to tell myself, and I don't always remember, is this. If God did nothing else but save me and I lived a torturous life, I'm still going to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's worth it. God's done more than enough by saving me. And every day of our life, everything else that's good should be considered gravy. Gravy. I hope that helps you. I want to end by saying this. I said, and and I remember uh, Donna here asked a great question. Is Jonah like Christ? Jonah is a picture of Christ. Gang, could we could we go back a few slides to the to the book chart again? Incredible that I tell you, Pastor Frank and the whole team. Thank you. What a team! Look at this. Man, what a thank you so much. In chapter one, Jonah was thrown into the sea. Chapter one is a picture of the death of Christ. Chapter 2, Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish. And how long was he in there? Three days and three nights. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Jesus. That's a picture of Christ's burial. Verse 10, Jonah was vomited up. This may sound weird. That's a picture of Christ's resurrection. Listen to this. The sea that Jonah was thrown in, is a picture of the nations. You see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, all the time. The sea is a picture of the nations. The sailors are a picture of false belief, but they're also a picture of people. Jonah is a picture of Jesus Christ. The storm is a picture of the consequences of sin. Why are there storms in the world? Why are there problems in the world? It's the consequences of sin. Being thrown 
overboard is a picture of the cross. Death. Jonah's entombment is a picture of Jesus being buried in the tomb. And Jonah being spit out is a picture of the resurrection. Jonah died to save the sinful sailors from their sin. And then he was resurrected. And after he was resurrected, what did he do in chapter 3? He shared the good news, in a sense. That's what we're supposed to do. Jonah is a picture of Christ. And this first two chapters is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Of course, Jonah was a sinner. Jesus was not. As we said, Donna um, Wilkerson Barker asked last time, great, great question. Not every part of somebody who's a type of Christ is exact. Because every type is something like Christ, but not totally, because no one could be as great as Christ. So let's pray. We'll have questions, and then we'll be done. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for this incredible study. We believe it's true, and we thank you for this miracle. And I pray that if life is attempting, is tempting to swallow us up, that we would learn these lessons and apply them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have any questions, this is our Q&A time. We have eight minutes for questions. So go ahead and fire away. And if you have to leave, by all means leave. We understand that. Thank you so much. And if you've got children, that's great. And then if you want to hear the Q&A, we're only going to go 10 more minutes Go to our podcast and listen to it, or you can buy the CD at Ripple. So feel free to leave if you have to leave. We'll only stay for eight more minutes. So any questions that you have? Oh, thank you, Pastor Frank. I think we, John Klotz, all right. Pastor Daniel, you're going to take these two sections. And Pastor Frank, if you go down this aisle and take these two. Just raise your hand really, really high. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, John, yeah, thank you. Thanks. I know you uh, mentioned that after... Jonah was in the belly of the whale that he, he prayed. But in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, uh, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then chapter 2 says, Then Jonah prayed. So it says he was in the belly of the whale three days. Mm -hmm. And then chapter 2 says, then he prayed. Right, while he does, was... Does that mean he was in the belly of the whale three days and then he decided to pray? Well, the, the text does not tell us. The NIV that I have, the NIV 84 says... This from is it, King James. Yeah. Um, sure. And then, yeah, and then no, from... I, 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 I caught no, it. I know. Okay. No, and... The NIV 84 says, from inside the fish. So this does not tell us when. It's an interesting point. Did it take an hour in the fish? Did it take, you know, uh, uh, many, many hours? We do not know when. We know it was sometime during this. Again, he had to have been in there at least 26 hours, right? Had to be a part of a, a, a day before and after. He could have been, he was in there somewhere between 26 and 72 hours. This makes it sound like he waited three days before he began to pray. Nothing if in the, it, yeah. If it were me, I'm on my knees praying the minute the fish closes its mouth. Okay? I'm not waiting three yes. days. Well, you're, the, the Bible does not tell us when during this um, stay that Jonah prayed. It does not tell us. Yes. NIV uh, 84 says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed. So we do not know when. It would be fascinating to know, wouldn't it? I mean, did he do this pretty quickly? 
or did it take some time? I imagine it was pretty quick because I think the... Yeah, and, and he had a stubborn streak, as we all do. Great question. Thank you. Any other questions? Oh, yes, we have um, Sharon, I believe. You know how you said that uh, Jonah, uh, when Jonah was, is the equivalent of the resurrection, um, when he was vomited up, and can, can, we, can we believe that those things can happen to us in our life where we have a situation um, not just everyday things, but something that is that changes us or brings us closer to God in a, in a, or a revelation in our life. Could you say that that, in, in a sense, we too have resurrections in our life as well? Yeah. So I, I, it's hard to know exactly what you're um, saying, Sharon. So if the if the question is, can God do miracles in our life? Yes. Um, is a miracle like this normative, very common, doubtful? But um, I not, believe not in a sense of uh, such an extreme thing that happened. With, but there's times where we, through our life, we have resurrections as well. Or is that just not? Am I taking that too literally as well? Well, I think it, it depends on what you mean by that. Like if you read Ephesians chapter two, verses one to ten. It talks about how we experience a, spirit, a spiritual resurrection, right? We are risen from the dead. We talked about this last Sunday, how all the different new things you have. You have a new life, you have a new nature, you have a new thing, and, and you have a new living hope and everything else. So how, how the resurrection works and how many things work. This is how the, the Bible says you were saved, if you believe in Christ. You're being saved, and you will be saved. And the Bible talks about the resurrection that way. You were resurrected. You're being resurrected, and you will be fully resurrected at the rapture of the church. So the first is called positional truth. God declares you resurrected, but you're not resurrected. There's practical truth. God is resurrecting your life, giving it new life in different areas. That's practical. Now the third P, the third stage, is permanent resurrection, where Christ raises you from the dead literally, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, the dead in Christ will rise first, then every live Christian, i.e. the rapture, will be resurrected and enjoying God in heaven, then we'll forever live in our resurrected bodies. So in a sense, we were resurrected, we have a positional new life, we are currently being resurrected, he's practically resurrecting, bringing new life to things that were dead to sin, and then one day all of our sin will be dead and we'll have a permanent resurrection in heaven. So in that sense, yeah, the resurrection seems to be he's resurrecting dead areas of our life that as we grow in Jesus Christ, he's resurrecting to newness of life. And in that sense, yes, we're experiencing resurrections, correct. I, I would say, I, ho I hope that helps. It's important to understand that, you know, you were you know, Colossians, we talked about this last Sunday, you were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Are you in the kingdom of heaven? Positionally, Yes. If you keep living for Jesus, practically, yes. But you're not permanently in the kingdom of heaven until you die. Positional, practical, permanent. If you understand that idea, you'll understand some of these statements and say, is that a positional statement, a practical statement, or a permanent statement? See? 
It's a very helpful idea. It's, it'll help you understand the Bible. Uh, one more question. Okay, uh, Wendy? Uh, just one second. Pastor Daniel's coming. One. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, this side won. We won. Yeah. Okay, um, when you said with sailors on a boat and you said there was false belief, can you explain that better? Say that again. I didn't hear the last part. I'm sorry. So, so you said there's sailors on the boat. Yeah, no, that's okay. You said with sailors on a boat and there was false belief? Yes. Can you explain that? Yeah, if you were here last time, what did the sailors do when the storm came in? They each did what? Prayed to their own gods or God, but they were false gods. Then when they heard about Jonah's God, they said, you know, remember they asked him those five questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What's your name, rank, serial number? And he said, I serve the God of heaven and earth. And in light of the storm, they said, the God who brought the storm on. And what did they do? God, you know, pray to him, ask him. And, and th- th- so they added God to their belief. They may not have been monotheistic, believed in just one God, but they believed in many gods. So they had false gods and false beliefs. As we talked about, they had different gods for different things. By the way, a lot of people do today. Pray to this individual, pray to this God, pray to this. For, when you travel, you do this. If you, if you do that, you got this God for this or this prayer thing. And, and we do this all the time. They had false gods that way. Now, they apparently added God to their penelope of gods. You know, whether they eventually came to true faith in God, we don't know. But it appeared that they, they, had, they certainly believed in idols. And that's why he was maybe referring to them when he said, you know, if you believe in idols, you forfeit the grace that God offers. But they had false belief. So, great, great question. Thank you very much, you guys. Love having you here tonight. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Sunday. If you have um, prayer needs, our elders can pray for you over here. I need to immediately run back. I can't really talk to anybody because we have uh, pastors from all over the Northeast here, and I'm having dinner with them, so I have to run. Thank you very, very much for being here tonight. Have a good evening.